This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. We're in a series this summer beginning with Moses going through the Pentateuch, the five first five books of the Bible, and as we looked at last week, we want to look at these books as really one book with Moses, the author, making an argument, uh, really contrasting the lives of Abraham and Moses. Abraham, who lived by faith and was declared righteous because of his faith in Genesis 15 versus Moses, who lived under the law and who died under the law, uh, never seeing the promised land. And Moses giving us this this argument that these two fundamentally dissimilar ways of living in the Pentateuch uh, display uh, God's desire for human history and really proclaim the gospel to Abraham beforehand, as the New Testament tells us. Now, just by way of getting our bearings, the first time that the nation of Israel would have heard Genesis chapter 1 was in the wilderness as Moses read it to them after he wrote it. Uh, sometimes it's uh, tempting to think that the original audience was Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, but it was actually the nation of Israel. Now, remember it was that second generation that was in the wilderness listening to Moses as he read this to them. And they had grown up in the wilderness. Many of them had never, they didn't see the, the sea crossing, uh, God parting the waters. They didn't see the 10 plagues of Egypt. They heard it from their parents, and they believed it by faith. And what we see in the book of Genesis as Abraham is lifted up as the, uh, not the hero, we'll talk about that, but the main character, certainly um, a big, a big uh, point in the book of Genesis is that this life of faith that Abraham exhibits is the life that God blesses and declares to be righteous not because of Abraham's faith or because of his works but simply because of God's grace that we just sang about Uh, but just like Abraham had to wait for many many years in his life to see the promises begin to unfold so too this second generation in the wilderness had to wait they were waiting their whole lives in the wilderness to see God fulfill his promises and because of that I can't think of a more important topic or more applicable topic to look at this morning because hasn't this year been a year of waiting this year has been a year of waiting like many of us maybe all of us have never had to wait before and what are we going to do in the wait well abraham he had an option to either worship god or worship idols build an idol or worship god that was the choice before him and as we're going to see in the life of abraham he didn't always make the right choice uh, this was the, what the Israelites in the wilderness were being put before them. What are you going to do in the wilderness? Are you going to worship God or build an idol? And they had tried that with a golden calf. Didn't work out so well for them. They tried it with the goat idols in Leviticus. It didn't work out for them so well. But here we're going to see this morning, even as paradise is lost, a promise to Abraham is given. And so Israel, think about them. They're sitting in the wilderness their worldview had their their view of their knowledge of the world had come from the Egyptians where they had left this land of a million gods 
their ancestors, the Mesopotamians, they would have been confused, perhaps, about the creation of the world, how it got to its present state, and how Israel had come into existence. In Genesis 1-11, to Moses gives us the, uh, the Israelites this to really correct their worldview. The origin and nature of creation, the origin of sin and murder and death and judgment, the multiplicity of languages and cultures and nations and so on and so forth. But there's another lesson that Moses is teaching them, and this lesson beginning with the fall of man and continuing in each successive account in Genesis is a pattern of God's relationship with mankind that emerges more and more clearly, and that's this. The more God demonstrates His grace to undeserving people, the more they scorn it, and His response is to respond with even more grace. What we just sang, grace greater than our sin, it reminds me of Paul in Romans 5.20 where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And God's plan from the beginning was a gracious plan to send a hero through a descendant of Eve who would undo everything that Adam did, who would reverse the curse and bring about salvation and make all things new and restore relationship between God and man. And Genesis brings this about, this promise of a Savior, a Messiah, a hero who was going to do this. Now, in your notes there, from paradise to prison, as it were, these four foundational events, Genesis 1 and 2, we see the creation of the world in man. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1 here is, Moses writes this hymn of creation intending to praise God for his creation of the world and his forming and filling this unformed and unfilled world so that mankind could live in it and have relationship with God. It's a bit of a um, uh, apologetic as well for God because it's intended to praise God and refute the gods of the nations like Egypt that they had left because all of the gods of Egypt, all of the gods of Mesopotamia were creatures, whether it was crocodiles or suns or moons or fields or trees or whatever it was it was the created thing and guess who created all of it elohim in the beginning elohim god created the heavens and the earth and so this is moses giving his people an apologetic that guess what the god you serve he's greater than all the gods around you they're just creatures and figments of man's imagination but we serve the living god the true god Genesis 2, we get details of mankind's responsibility. And we talked about this last week, that they are a kingdom of priests. In fact, two, chapter 2, verse 15, let's skip over to there. The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And that word cultivate or till, sometimes it's translated serve, it's translated, it's a Hebrew word avad, which is used throughout the Pentateuch of Moses, the book, the, this, these five books of Moses, to refer to priestly duty. For example, when Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go, this is what God says, let my people go, that they would go out in the wilderness and 
serve me or worship me. It's the same word, avad. The Levitical priests in the tabernacle, their main duty was to do this word, serve, avad. And so Adam is the first priest, as it were, in this garden with a priestly duty to serve the garden. In this case, to cultivate it, this, to, and also to keep it. Shamar is the other Hebrew word, and it's to guard it, to keep it. This responsibility, this priestly duty, these two words are tied together in Leviticus for the tabernacle. This was the responsibility of the priests to serve and keep the tabernacle. And so this Garden of Eden is the prototype tabernacle. How else do we know this? Well, the whole reason that the tabernacle was given is because in the Holy of Holies, this is where God's manifest presence was among His people so that they could draw near to Him and have communion with Him and fellowship with Him. And what does Adam do here in chapter 2? He walks with God in the garden. He has relationship, communion with the living God. In fact, it's the curse and sin and Adam's rebellion that plunges the world into the fall and breaks the communion and the fellowship with God. But Adam's not only to be a priest, he's also to be a king. He's to have authority. He's to rule over the earth. He's to name the animals. And also, he's to fill the earth and subdue it. Now, what is he to fill the earth and subdue? As I mentioned last week, He's to fill the earth with a bunch of little king priests so that the Garden of Eden, imagine this picture of the whole globe, starts in a garden and Adam's, the the command he was given was fill the whole earth with people like you who are king priests so that God's name would be known over the whole earth. Well, the first Adam failed, but we know the end of the story, don't we? The second Adam, he succeeded. And what did he do? He made us a kingdom of priests. So that now, every nation, tribe, people, and tongue are a kingdom of priests to him, Revelation 1 tells us. And in Revelation 21 and 22, what are we doing in the new earth? We're serving him day and night in his temple, which fills the whole earth, called the New Jerusalem. So the garden becomes a city, a temple city. And this has been God's plan from the beginning. Well, the corruption of man in the fall in chapters 3 through 5. Adam and Eve sin by eating of the fruit. They disobey God. They're about to be given the left foot of fellowship right out of the garden. And Adam's plunged all of the world into death, even the universe, through his sin. But right before that judgment, what does God do? He shows grace. He gives them a promise. Uh, chapter 3, uh, you see this poetry Verses 14 to 19, in fact, in your Bibles, you might see it indented differently to tell you it's Hebrew poetry. And as a reminder from last week, the poetry explains the narrative. It gives theological interpretation of the narrative. And throughout the Pentateuch, we could run to the poetry and see this theological interpretation. And what we see in all the poetry is, guess what? There's going to be a Messiah a descendant, a hero who's going to come and who's going to restore everything lost in the garden. And over and over, we're going to see this as we go. But here in Genesis 3.15, God speaking to the serpent says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And now, I know that that, first, that generation of Israelites in the wilderness, they didn't know this was talking about the Messiah. Like they didn't say, oh wow, that's the proto-evangelium. That's the first proclamation of the gospel. That's incredible. 
No, it took greater unfolding. Now, what's remarkable is they were given this book of Moses, and by the time you get to Deuteronomy, you know that this descendant of the woman is going to come. He's going to be a prophet like Moses. He's going to bring in a new covenant. He's going to give everybody the Holy Spirit and circumcise their hearts so that they can obey God. And he's go- there, So there's a whole lot more known about this hero. And if we could read all five books of Moses this morning, we would get a very robust picture of the Messiah who's coming. But Luther says of this passage, this text, Genesis 3.15, embraces and comprehends within itself everything noble and glorious that's to be found anywhere in the Scriptures. Why could he say that? Because we live on this side of the cross. We know that Genesis 3.15 was talking about Jesus. And he's the one that though Satan bruised him at the cross at the cross jesus crushed the head of satan as hebrew says he destroyed him who had the power of death that is the devil and released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage so here we have this proclamation of this one who's to come but there's going to be warfare there's going to be enmity there's going to be strife between the seed of the woman the the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent and genesis shows us this battle the battle's evident in the second generation in genesis chapter 4 cain kills abel genesis chapter 5 the extent of the fall continues to show that things go from bad to worse so that by the time you get to genesis chapter 6 verse 5 the hearts of man was evil always continually And God determined to destroy the world that once was with water, with a flood. And so, in the midst of this, I want to point out that God's sovereign grace is still on display. In fact, look at chapter 5, verse 24. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, we wish we knew more about Enoch, and in between the testamental periods, there was a whole book of Enoch written that was all sorts of um, speculation on the life of Enoch by Jewish uh, scholars. But what we do know from this verse is that the curse did not fall upon Enoch. He didn't die. He walked with God, and God took him. He escaped the curse. And here we see this walking with God is parallel to Adam walking with God in the garden. Fellowship restored. Well, we're going to see very quickly by the time we get to Genesis 15 that just like Adam walked with God in the garden and lost it in the fall, Enoch walks with God, Noah walks with God, and then Abraham walks with God, and it's by faith he believes the promises of God regarding this Messiah who's coming and God reckons it to him as righteousness. This is what Moses is is getting at in this first part of Genesis. Now the hero is not Enoch. The hero is not Noah later. The hero is not Abraham. The hero is God. He's the main character in the story. He is the central figure. And by Genesis chapter 2, Moses is using the name Yahweh. And the reason he's doing it is because the Israelites who hear this know this is the covenant name for the God who is with them and in their presence, who is steadfast in his love and abounding in his faithfulness, who had appeared to Moses on the mountain, who had appeared to him in the burning bush, who is 
the, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night that was in their presence, in their camp. And so Moses is telling the people, this is who God is. He's a God of grace abounding to undeserving people. Chapters 10 and 11, the nations are dispersed. We see the origins of the nations in chapter 10 in this table of nations. And most importantly, it addresses Canaan. And this is the divine justification in chapters 10 and 11 for why the Israelites could go in and conquer the promised land. In fact, in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel explains how the Canaanites moved into Israel's land and that God's given Israel divine approval to conquer them because their aspirations at Babel were to dethrone God not just on earth but also in heaven. In fact, it's a mockery of the garden because they try to build their own temple city where God has no part and man becomes God in contrast to the temple city that God wanted to establish on the earth. And so God gives divine and theological reasons why Israel has the right to go conquer Canaan and take the land that was promised to them. Which leads us right to the promise of Genesis 12. Turn over there, verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now this promise to Abraham is going to cover the rest of Genesis. And the reason I say that is because God reiterates the promise to Isaac and to Jacob and to the twelve sons in Genesis 49. God keeps His promises. But what I want you to see, and and we're going to see this in the weeks to come, that the Abraham story forms the heart of the book of Genesis, and it's one part of the argument Moses is making. The Pentateuch lays out, as I said, these two fundamentally dissimilar ways of walking with God. One is to be like Moses under the law of Sinai, and the other is to be like Abraham, who is by faith and apart from the law, justified by God. And God calls this, of course, the new covenant later. But turn to Genesis 15, verse 6. I want you to see this here. And this is after Abraham had been waiting for many years for God to fulfill his promise. Again, bringing up that question, what are you going to do in the wait? Abraham, what are you going to do? Well, here's what Abraham did. He believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now keep in mind, we haven't looked at the life of Abraham yet, but Abraham, he's not the hero of the story. In fact, he's a bit of a knucklehead in the story. He does a whole lot of really dumb things in the story. He doesn't deserve this. It's not like Abraham is this great guy. What does he do? He says to the king of Egypt, for example, oh yeah, my wife, she's just my sister. Yeah, she could be your wife, okay. Like, in no way could I comprehend saying that to somebody, ever, in my life. In fact, I think there might be some laying on of hands if that type of situation came up. And not in the elder sense, uh, in the jujitsu sense. (laughs) I mean, Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. I would be much happier to give that to somebody who wanted to take my wife. 
right? Abraham, he, he then, well, I don't want to get ahead of my notes, but Abraham's faith here is important for a number of reasons. First, it's clear that these divine promises of land and offspring and blessing will never be fulfilled in his lifetime. How in the world in his lifetime would his descendants become like the stars in the heavens? How is he going to take this land in his lifetime? How in his lifetime through his descendant would all the nations of the earth be blessed? Second, circumstances develop in the chapters that follow that threaten to fulfill this promise. Whether it's the barrenness of Sarah or the command to sacrifice Isaac. So ultimately, this promise rests on God's grace and mercy and not Abraham's obedience. And this is what Moses is getting at. Moses wants the people to see this. Ultimately, it's an issue of worship. And what are you going to do in the wait? Are you going to worship God or build an idol? I think that's incredibly applicable today. Because I don't know about you, but this year, I've had a whole lot of waiting. A lot of waiting on the Lord. And what am I going to do? Am I going to believe that His promises are yes and amen in His Son? Or am I going to run to the, the idols of this world to try to find safety and security and happiness and peace? Well, turn over to Hebrews 11. I, I want to read this because it's a nice summary of Abraham's life and Sarah's life. Hebrews 11. Starting in verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going to a place where he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. What city is that? That's that temple city that God wanted to build through Adam and his descendants. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of her life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Down to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. And he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding the things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. These examples of faith. And what we see there is that their faith is an assurance of things hoped for, like Hebrews 11.1 1 says, and the conviction of things not seen. Abraham was believing the promises of God regarding the Messiah, this descendant who was to come. He was believing the gospel, in other words. Now, he didn't yet know, that's why the author of Hebrews says, they didn't quite receive what was promised having believed it on faith because we now on this side of the cross, we've received it. We know that the Messiah's name is Jesus and that he's the son of God and the son of man and that when he came, he came to die on a cross and the way he established 
the ability to give us his righteousness was dying as our substitute and being buried and rising again and defeating death in the grave and he's now seated at the right hand of God. And he's our high priest interceding forever. And he's our king ruling forever. He is the king priest. And now as the second Adam, he's created us to be a kingdom of priests. And what's remarkable, and I'll talk about this more next week when we get to Exodus, is that 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 desire for the garden that was foreshadowed in the tabernacle where people could draw near to God and have relationship with him, now Jesus has torn the veil open as it were and we have access. And now we're called the temple and we can draw near to the throne of grace whenever we want and find grace and mercy to help in our time of need. That's good news, isn't it? Because I'm needy. I'm in great need, and to know that I have access to the God who made the heavens and the earth, and he's my father in heaven, and he so loved me, he gave his son, and he hasn't left me as an orphan, but he poured out his spirit and given me this new covenant that he promised to Abraham, and he promised in the Pentateuch that this circumcision of the heart, the writing of the law on the heart, has now come, and we're free, and we're delivered. And we have a hope that will never disappoint and put us to shame because all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. So brothers and sisters, don't grow weary in well-doing. In the midst of your waiting, in the midst of your battle, worship God. Believe His promises. When you're tempted to doubt, look to the cross. Look to the love of your Father displayed at the cross in His Son. Remember that you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you and He hasn't abandoned you and He hasn't forsaken you. This is what Abraham was doing as he was casting himself upon God and believing. This is what Moses is trying to teach his people and this brings us great hope because everything lost in the fall is regained in Christ. Everything demanded by the old covenant is fulfilled in Christ. Everything foreshadowed in the law of Moses finds its completion in Christ. And because of Jesus, we have all the answers and we have all the hope. We are a blessed people. Well, Moses has, I mean, uh, Abraham has to wait. Genesis 12 to 20, back in Genesis, he's waiting on the Lord to fulfill the promise. I want to point out another, just another mention of grace. In that phrase in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed in genesis 12 3 we see that god's desire is to bring blessing ultimately and not curse upon the nations it may be very easy to think that god was going to curse all the other nations in fact that's what the jewish people by the time of jesus believed they were all gentiles and under a curse and less than dogs and jesus says oh no i have other sheep who are not of this fold and i must go get them also And you know who those other sheep are? Us, on the other side of the planet, from Jerusalem, the ends of the earth, 2,000 years later, hallelujah. This is really good news. We're a part of the promise of God. We weren't left out. Well, there's threats to the promise. And and I think this answers the question from Genesis 12 to 20, why did uh, Moses choose these events in the life of Abraham? In nearly every event that is in these passages, we see the promise is placed in jeopardy by the actions of the characters. 
by their own bad decisions, they place the promise of God in jeopardy. And yet what we see is God is the hero. He's going to keep his promises and nothing can stand in the way, not human failure, not the schemes of the serpent, Satan, nothing. So chapter 12 and 13, the king of Egypt takes Sarah to be his wife. Chapter 13, Abraham tells Lot, hey, why don't you choose what land you want? Maybe even the promised land that's over there. Go for it. Lot chooses a different land because he thought it was better. Chapters 14 and 15, Abraham offers a, is tempted to offer a gift to the king of Sodom instead of the king of Salem, and yet he, by faith, obeys God and doesn't give in. Chapter 16, they decide to have Ishmael through Hagar to try to fulfill the promise on their own. Chapter 17 and 18, Sarah is still barren well past the years of childbearing. And in chapter 20, as if he didn't learn the first time, Abimelech, another king, takes Sarah to be his wife. And so all of this is in threat to the promise that there's going to be a descendant who's going to come and make all things new. Now Abraham's response we saw in Genesis 15-6 is faith. And, and I love that, that this faith is not based upon how great Abraham is. It's not based upon his character because we see it's not that great. It's not based upon the fact that he was chosen by God to come out of Ur because he was the best to choose. No, it's simply God's grace. And doesn't that give us hope? Because if we're honest, we're just like Abraham. We make really bad decisions. From a human perspective, we would threaten all the promises of God by our decisions. And yet nothing will thwart God's plan. He's on his throne. He is good and he does good. This is why the New Testament picks up this theme. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd and no one can snatch them out of my hands and the Father's greater than me and no one can snatch them out of the Father's hands. We're doubly secure. It's why Paul in Romans 8 says, there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not even ourselves. We're part of one of those things in all creation, by the way. Hallelujah. He will hold us fast. That's what we see. Abraham's response, of course, is by faith. And Moses is arguing that this is a better way than the law. In fact, Deuteronomy 30, we don't have time to turn there. We'll get to there. That he's saying, because when he tells people, the law tells you circumcise your own heart so that you may live. But you can't do it. And so the Messiah is going to come who's going to circumcise your hearts so that you will live. Deuteronomy 30. Abraham is waiting for the promise of a son and the generation in the wilderness is awaiting fulfillment of these promises to the fathers. Neither could see any evidence of the fulfillment. They're, they're just like us. Like Isaiah says to those who wait on the Lord in Isaiah 40, those who live through present affliction only because they're waiting on the Lord. They're, they're, they, we have to exercise faith. I want to encourage you, it reminds me of 2 Peter 3 where Peter reminds the Christians in the first century, hey, the Lord is not slow in keeping His promises as some count slowness. He, he's not slow. He's waiting for all to come to repentance. There are divine reasons that are rooted in His character that even when we don't understand what He's doing, we can trust who He is. 
and that this waiting is for our good and for his glory. So Abraham, by faith, obeys, as we heard in Hebrews 11. He goes in chapter 12 to the land the Lord told him, or at least left his land. And in chapter 17, he obeys by circumcising his household as a sign of this covenant. In chapter 22, he obeys uh, by offering up his son Isaac. He also worships. He builds an altar at Bethel, uh, chapter 12, and Mamre in chapter 13. This life of faith is manifested in obedient worship. And the, the, the order is important, isn't it? We don't obey in order that we might be declared righteous. Abraham was by faith declared righteous, and then we see his obedience and his worship. So it's by grace, through faith. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's why the New Testament author said the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. And it's what Moses is commending. I'm convinced of it in the Pentateuch. And so this is, this is absolutely consistent with the plan of God from the very beginning. All of history is a history of His sovereign grace. Well, chapters 21 and 22, we get another name of God, Yahweh Yireh, or in your old King James, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Chapter 21, a son is given. Isaac, chapter 22, Verse 18, in fact, turn over there to Genesis 22, 18. This is important in the New Testament. Paul picks up on this in Galatians, but here we see the same promise after Isaac is born and um, after Abraham by faith offers him up. He says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. Now, seed there, offspring is singular in this verse. In other verses, it was plural in your descendants. Paul picks this up in Galatians, and he says, here Moses was speaking not of seed plural, but seed singular, that is of the Messiah, Jesus. This is a promise of the Messiah who's to come, who's going to be a descendant of Isaac. So how is God keeping his promise? Well, he says it's through Abraham and through Isaac and then we see the first fruits of this promise being fulfilled in, verse, in chapters 23 to 25 where Abraham buys a burial plot. Isaac gets his bride in chapter 24 and then Abraham's buried in the promised land that he rightfully owned. Now, they didn't quite claim it and inherit it, but it's the first fruits. God keeps his promises. He kept his promise to Abraham. This is... This is going to be the story of Israel is God keeping His promises in spite of their disobedience. You remember when they took the promised land and um, they were told to put stones of remembrance, uh, stones of these remembrance stones called Ebenezer's. It's a Hebrew word, stone of help. And they were to put them in the river when they crossed the River Jordan. And they were to take their children and walk by and point to those stones and tell their kids, this is how far the Lord has brought us. He's been faithful. Now, we don't have those Ebenezer stones in Pleasant Hill or Benicia where I live, but we have those moments in our life where we know God answered prayer. He was faithful. He delivered us. He kept us. He preserved us. And we can look back to those and say, oh yeah, he's faithful, and I know he'll be faithful in the future because he never changes. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. And so he's not forgotten me. He's not forsaken me. I've not slipped his mind. 
I have five children. It's easy to kind of have one, you forget about them. I might have left a child somewhere once in my life. It might have happened. You can't pin me to it, but maybe. God isn't that way though. You're not slipping his mind. He's not forgotten about you. You're not abandoned or forsaken. He's going to keep his promises. All of them to you. And when you doubt it, look to Jesus. Well, he's the hero in Genesis 25 to 33. What we see in the lives of Isaac and Jacob is that God's faithfulness in the past can be counted on in the present and in the future. What he did for Abraham, he'll do for the sons. And hallelujah, he did it in the life of Jacob. Because if we thought Abraham was a knucklehead, holy moly, Jacob takes the cake. He's, you know, he, he just becomes, he's a trickster, he's a thief, he's a manipulator, con artist, a liar. And yet God is not only the God of Abraham and Isaac, he's the God of Jacob. How could it be? Not because Jacob deserved it, simply by his grace. So, chapters 25 to 28, this tale of two brothers, Jacob wrestling with Esau over the birthright. Esau rejects it in chapter 25. Jacob steals it in chapter 27. Neither of them deserved it. And yet God shows his grace to Jacob. Now he's the hero, chapter 28, and I wish we had time to read through chapter 28 because throughout the Bible is that phrase, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is a hero of a God, which means there is great hope for real sinners. I love this about the Scriptures is that we see that real sinners who are really broken and messed up have hope. And the reason that's hopeful is because we know that we are really sinners who are broken and messed up we might paint on a nice appearance you know we got our social media set to where it looks like our life is great the reality is we are broken messed up people who need a savior and jesus has delivered us and this is what god was promising and he's keeping his promises and so chapters 29 to 31 of course jacob just here we go again he's wrestling with laban of course, he gets out-tricked by his father-in-law and gets the wrong wife at first. And then he responds by not loving his wife, Leah. And yet the Lord wants to teach Jacob, and so Leah is able to have children while the wife that Jacob loves, Rachel, is barren. And all the mess of how the 12 sons came about, you can read the story in Genesis Jacob is not a great guy. He even tries to swindle Laban out of a bunch of sheep and is forced to flee. And so Jacob comes to chapter 32 where the high point of the story is with regard to Jacob where Jacob wrestles with God. And finally he's in a position where he's outmatched and unprepared. He's now in the hands of the one against whom it's useless to struggle. The one who made him. And his wrestling turns into clinging, which is a simple act of faith. And um, God changes his name to Israel. And the name Israel is fascinating because it means God fights or God contends. And, and a lot of commentators will talk about, well, that's the reason he changed his name was because Jacob fought with God as if God was fighting against Jacob. But I don't think that's what Moses was intending to show the people of Israel. 
The reason God changed his name was because Jacob finally exercised faith in God. God changes his name to say, I'm going to fight Jacob for your people. So as Moses is reading it, and Israel is about to go into the promised land, they hear, God is the God of Jacob who was named Israel, and God's going to fight for us on our behalf who's in our midst. This name brings great hope. With God's help, Israel would fight their enemies like the Canaanites in the land. Now, that story, of course, also teaches us your arms are too short to box with God. You're never going to win when you fight against God. You might think you feel better, but you're never going to win. But praise God, He is gracious and merciful, and He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Well, Jacob names the place Peniel because he had seen God face to face and been delivered. And in chapter 33, he meets his brother Esau, and he thought Esau was going to kill him, but instead Esau runs and embraces him, and Jacob comes safely to the land of Canaan in Shechem. Well, the remainder of the book of Genesis, you see the life of Joseph from a pit to a palace and the question, let me just put it this way in summary, because we don't have time to go through the whole life of Joseph. But we know that it's through the line of Judah the Messiah comes. We know that it's through that particular brother of the 12 that the Messiah is coming and the promise is made. But the Israelites who are hearing this for the first time, though they had known, because Genesis 49 had been said and given, the way the story goes is Joseph seems like the hero, and so it seems proper that the blessing would come through Joseph rather than Judah. And it's amazing that in chapters 37 to 41, we see Joseph and Judah compared. Joseph has dreams that become true. Joseph is, responds godly in Potiphar's house and flees from the sexual immorality. Joseph is raised up to be the right hand of Pharaoh. Whereas Judah, what goes on in those chapters? Well, Judah sells his brother into slavery. Judah sins with Tamar and has a child out of wedlock with his daughter-in-law. How in the world could Judah be the one through whom the Messiah comes? Joseph is the better candidate. Well, Joseph is the prince in Egypt, but Judah is the king through whom the line comes. And that's chapters 42 to 50. Judah, not Joseph, becomes the one through whom the Messiah will come. Turn over to, to Genesis 48. We have a minute here. I want to show you that God is still the hero. Genesis 48, 15. Jacob says at the beginning of his blessings. Now remember the poetry interprets the narrative here. It explains theologically and here this is poetry. He blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. What a, who's the hero at the end of Genesis? Not Jacob. Not Israel, not Abraham, not Isaac. It's God who has been a shepherd all the life of Jacob. He's the angel, the messenger who redeemed me from all evil. Well, then when you turn to chapter 49, 
verses 8 to 12, and we see this promise to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. We see this blessing, which is a prophecy that through Judah, this one named Shiloh will come. And in some English versions, you might have, it means the one to whom it belongs, and you might have that as the translation. This is the one to whom tribute is due. This is the one, all the obedience of the nations are due, this one. Well, who is it? Well, it's Jesus. In fact, Revelation tells us, actually, let's just walk through very quickly. Psalm 2.8, the Father says to the pre-incarnate Son, Ask of me, I will make the nations your inheritance. Daniel 7 Verses 13 and 14, the ancient of days tells the one like a son of man. There was before me one like a son of man. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power that all peoples, men of every language, worshiped him. Philippians 2, we know it's Jesus. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Revelation 5, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And they sang a new song. You are worthy. With your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Where does that illustration of the lion of the tribe of Judah come? Genesis 49. Who's the descendant of Abraham, of Eve and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah? Who's come? Well, according to Revelation 5, when John turns to see who this lion of the tribe of Judah is, he sees a lamb standing as if slain the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of the throne and all of the heavenly court is worshiping him because he was slain and purchased for himself people from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. And to him belongs the obedience of all the peoples, all the nations. This is where the end is going. This is our hope. Because we live in this overlap of the ages. Jesus has come once for our sins and he's coming again to make all things new. He's going to restore all things and the new Jerusalem is going to come out of heaven and God the Father will be in our presence on this earth and the whole earth becomes the holy of holies, the place where God's glory dwells. And it says in Revelation 22 that what we're going to be doing is reigning forever as kings and serving forever as priests in his presence. What are we going to do in the waiting? Are we going to worship? Are we going to build an idol? Oh, brothers and sisters, don't grow weary in well-doing. Draw near to God. Worship Him. Say to Him, I'm yours. Do with me whatever you want. And when you don't understand what He's doing and why He's allowing what He allows, trust His character. Trust who He is. Trust who He's revealed to be from the opening pages of Scripture. The one who's gracious and compassionate and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The one who is full of grace and truth. This one who has loved us, who sent his son, who poured out his spirit. Oh, this is the good news of the word of God. 
Father, thank you for this this morning.